The Concert by Dutch master Johannes Vermeer is one of the most famous paintings in the world. Completed around 1664, it depicts three musicians, two women and a man, playing together in a sunny parlor. The man sits in the center with his back to the viewer, creating a sense of mystery. This enigmatic work has been interpreted as both a moral warning against seduction and a quiet ode to the simple power of music. In 1892, an American art collector named Isabella Stewart Gardner bought the concert at a Parisian auction. When Gardner opened an art museum in Boston, more than a decade later in 1903, Vermeer's masterwork was the centerpiece. For the better part of a century, the Gardner Museum displayed the concert prominently in the building's Dutch room. Art critics and appreciators flocked from all over the world to see Vermeer's masterwork. This included the two men who quietly entered the Dutch room on March 18th, 1990. They walked through the gallery and gazed at the classic Vermeer painting. But unlike most guests, these men weren't visiting during normal hours. It was 2 a.m. and they hadn't come to merely admire Vermeer's artistry. They were there to steal the most valuable painting in the world. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we examine history's most compelling mysteries. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on the Gardner Museum heist, the largest art theft in world history. It has been unsolved for nearly 30 years. This episode will cover the break-in and robbery, the thieves' methods and targets, and the FBI's involvement. Next time, we'll learn how the investigation continued for decades as suspects and leads piled up. We'll also explore how the case became intricately enmeshed in the grimy world of Boston organized crime. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. 
In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. March 18, 1990, Boston, Massachusetts. Just after one in the morning, two men climbed out of a hatchback car parked on the street. The castle-like Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum loomed above them as they approached the large locked wooden door at the side entrance. One of the men pressed the intercom buzzer. The noise startled the security guard inside. 23-year-old Rick Abbott wasn't used to visitors this late at night. He usually spent his shift playing cards in the security booth, fighting boredom and occasionally tracking down a faulty fire alarm. But tonight was different. When Abbott answered, the two guests identified themselves as police officers there to investigate a disturbance in the museum's courtyard. Abbott was confused. There hadn't been any major disturbances during the shift. He hadn't called the cops, and Abbott's bosses had given him strict instructions never to let anyone inside after hours. While he debated whether to believe the so-called police officers, Abbott checked the CCTV feed. The men seemed to be in their 30s, and they definitely looked like cops to him. They wore uniforms and each had a bushy mustache. There was nothing to indicate they were lying. So despite his nerves, he unlocked the door and buzzed them into the museum. The two policemen entered the building and walked up to the security booth, asking if Abbott was the only guard on duty. Abbott felt increasingly confused and anxious, but he told them there was one other guard, 25-year-old Randy Hestand, currently doing his rounds. The policeman asked Abbott to call him. Despite his apprehension, he did as he was asked. While they waited for Heston to arrive, the policeman looked closely at Abbott. One of them claimed he looked familiar and speculated there might be a warrant out for his arrest. They beckoned Abbott out of the booth to examine him a little closer. Abbott hesitated. Nothing about this felt right and his gut told him not to trust these policemen. But Abbott didn't want to get arrested for not following instructions, especially since he had tickets to a Grateful Dead show later that day, and he couldn't bear to miss it. As soon as he exited the booth and approached the policemen, Abbott felt a sense of dread. Up close, he could see that one of the cop's mustaches was fake. Before Abbott could react, the supposed policeman grabbed him, shoved him against the wall, and knocked the cowboy hat off his head. As they locked handcuffs around his wrists, Abbott heard his partner, Randy Heston, approach. He hoped that Heston would realize what was happening and make a run for it. But Heston didn't. Before he could even process what he was seeing, the policeman handcuffed him, too. With both security guards subdued, the fake officers dropped their cover and announced that this was a robbery. They promised that if their captives didn't make any trouble, they wouldn't be injured. Heston replied, 
Don't worry, they don't pay me enough to get hurt. He meant it. Heston wasn't even supposed to be working that day and was only covering the overnight shift as a favor. The robbers worked quickly, wrapping layer after layer of duct tape around their captives' eyes and mouths. When they were satisfied that the guards wouldn't be able to see or make any noise, the burglars marched them down the stairs. To make sure Abbott and Heston wouldn't pose a threat in the future, the thieves also claimed they knew where the guards lived. However, no harm would come to them or their loved ones as long as they cooperated. Inside the basement, the intruders split their captives up. They handcuffed Heston to a workbench in one room while they locked Abbott to a pipe in another. They swiped the guards' wallets for good measure before leaving them shivering in the dark. With the only security personnel taken care of, the robbers ascended back up to the main floor. It was time to steal millions of dollars worth of world-famous art. But as the men approached the valuable paintings in the museum's Dutch room, they triggered a motion-detecting alarm. One of the robbers kicked it, silencing it instantly. Then, they moved to their first target, Rembrandt's Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee. The five-foot-tall canvas depicted the biblical tale of Jesus Christ's voyage on a fishing boat through a storm. As Rembrandt's only seascape painting, it was both historically and artistically significant. Without ceremony, the thieves pulled it off the wall and slammed it onto the ground, shattering its frame. With a knife, one of the men cut the canvas from its bindings and yanked the painting out. They then repeated the process on two more Rembrandts. They tried to take the artist's fourth and final piece in the gallery, but it was too large. They gave up. But they weren't done with the Dutch room. On a brightly lit table at the center of the gallery sat their biggest prize, the concert by Johannes Vermeer. And it only took a few moments for the thieves to remove a $200 million canvas and stash it away. That was their last target in the Dutch room. But as they left, they grabbed an ancient Chinese beaker from its display. Then they made their way to the museum's short gallery, a narrow room containing mostly oil sketches and drawings. The thieves acted rapidly and decisively, snatching five 19th century drawings by Edgar Degas. Though they weren't anywhere near as valuable as the paintings, they were small and easy to take. Next, the robbers climbed on top of a cabinet in the corner and attempted to pull down a gilded Napoleonic banner hanging above the doorway. This proved to be difficult. The banner, held in place by numerous tiny screws, refused to budge. After a few minutes spent battling with the fastenings, the men abandoned the task and swiped the gilded bronze eagle from atop a flagpole instead. From there, the thieves moved into the museum's blue room, where they pulled Chez Tortoni by Edouard Manet off the wall. They knocked the canvas out of its bindings and, for some reason, decided to take the frame with them. It had been less than an hour and a half since they'd first infiltrated the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, and the robbers had stolen 13 pieces of art off its walls. 
All in all, the loot they made off with was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And none of it would ever be seen again. Coming up, the thieves complete their robbery and the investigation begins. The internet. What would we do without it? So much information, so little time. And yet, with all the answers available online, there still lie scores of deep, dark, spooky secrets. Mysteries yet to be solved until now. This isn't clickbait. This is our exclusive new podcast, Internet Urban Legends. I'm Loey, your evidence expert. And I'm Eleanor, the self-proclaimed skeptic. Together, we're the gruesome twosome, sleuths in search of the weirdest stories on the web. Every Tuesday, we investigate the internet's creepiest conundrums, covering each conspiracy theory and combing through every clue to separate hoax from haunt. Whether it's the video sure to make you lose your appetite, blank room soup, or every kid's worst nightmare, the terrifying truth behind Disney's deaths, or every parent's worst nightmare, social media's Momo challenge. Each episode of Internet Urban Legends is chock full of disturbing details which are either truly demented or ripe for debunking. And no matter our conclusion, we're sure to be left scared half to death. So won't you join us? Follow our new Spotify original from Parcast, Internet Urban Legends. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In the early morning of March 18, 1990, a pair of robbers dressed as police officers paraded through the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum after hours. They swiped hundreds of millions of dollars worth of stolen art. Now, all they had to do was retrace their steps, cover their tracks, and leave without a trace. First, the thieves returned to the basement, where they checked on their captives, night security guards Rick Abbott and Randy Hestand. Both were bound and gagged in separate rooms. In a surprisingly friendly tone of voice, the captors asked if their hostages were comfortable and if their restraints were too tight. Abbott and Hestand were too terrified to respond. Not that they could say much if they'd wanted to. Their mouths were duct-taped shut. Perhaps feeling generous after their spree, the thieves returned Abbott's wallet. They left it by his side along with his cowboy hat before leaving the basement. Next, the robbers returned to the security booth. They opened the video surveillance system and ripped out the tapes that had recorded their entrance. Before departing for good, the thieves left a parting gift on the security director's chair the empty wooden frame that had once held the Manet painting. Between 2.40 and 2.45 a.m., 80 minutes after first stepping foot inside, the two robbers opened the side door and exited the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. It took them two trips to carry their plunder to their car. Once they were packed up, they drove off into the cold Boston night leaving behind a mystery that's haunted the city for over 30 years. 
Hours later, as the sun rose over Boston on the morning of March 18th, Rick Abbott was still bound, gagged, and handcuffed to a pipe in the museum's basement. Abbott hadn't heard the thieves leaving the museum or anything after. But as the hours stretched on, his imagination ran wild. He irrationally worried that the robbers were planning on burning down the museum with him inside. To calm himself and prevent a panic attack, Abbott began quietly singing the most relevant and inspirational song he could think of, Bob Dylan's I Shall Be Released. Finally, at 6.45 a.m., the two morning shift security guards arrived. They rang the buzzer but received no answer. Lacking keys, they couldn't get into the building. Growing worried, they went to a payphone and called the museum's deputy director of security, Larry O'Brien. O'Brien had a bad feeling as soon as he answered the phone. He got to the museum as quickly as he could and opened the back entrance. O'Brien and the guards tentatively stepped inside, expecting the worst. The first detail that seemed out of place was an unwound coat hanger discarded by the door. The museum required strict organization from its employees, so the hanger was a sure sign something had gone wrong. Inside the empty security booth, O'Brien spotted the empty wood frame from the Manet painting. His stomach dropped as he realized they'd been robbed. O'Brien called in the cavalry. Within minutes, the museum's director of security was on site, along with five officers from the Boston Police Department. Soon after beginning a search, the officers discovered Abbott and Heston in the basement. The guards were thrilled to be rescued, but that joy quickly turned to frustration when the officers didn't untie them or remove the duct tape from their heads. The police wanted to hold off until their photographer arrived and took pictures of the bound guards for evidence. Abbott and Heston would need to wait a bit longer. But the police photographers weren't the only officials called to the scene. Just past 8 a.m., as he sat in church for Sunday morning mass, FBI agent Edward Quinn's pager beeped. Quinn was the supervisory special agent of the Boston Bureau's so-called Reactive Squad, a group of investigative first responders. Quinn excused himself and drove to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. When Quinn arrived with his 26-year-old lead investigator, Daniel Falzon, the local law enforcement officers cleared the way. Quinn and Falzon announced the FBI would be taking exclusive control of the investigation. The Boston police and the museum's administration didn't know why the FBI became involved. Art theft wasn't a federal crime, and the FBI technically had no jurisdiction over state-level offenses. And the FBI has still never publicly explained why they assumed command of the case. The decision is still controversial to this day. Some observers have speculated that the Bureau assumed the art would be transported across state lines and chose to take control for that reason. Whatever the explanation, the local law enforcement had almost nothing to do with the investigation after that morning. The federal takeover angered some of the Gardner's staff. Anne Hawley, the museum's director, worried that the FBI wouldn't make the case a priority. 
Her concerns only deepened when she met Daniel Falzon and realized the Bureau was putting a 26-year-old in charge of the case. Although Falzon was young, he wasn't inexperienced. The son of a prominent detective, Falzon had previously worked as a cop in San Francisco. There, he'd assisted his father in the search for and eventual capture of Richard Ramirez, a notorious serial killer, also known as the Night Stalker. He also had experience solving burglaries. In his first major case for the FBI, Falzon had helped track down two stolen antique revolvers. His work led to the arrest of Miles Connor, one of the most infamous art thieves in the history of Boston. But nothing could prepare him for the mysteries of the Gardner Museum heist. Within hours of beginning the investigation, Falzon began to suspect the theft was an inside job. The speed and confidence with which the thieves had moved through the museum and disabled the motion detector in the Dutch room suggested they were familiar with the building and its security features. So he narrowed his focus on Rick Abbott and Randy Hestand. By mid-morning, the two exhausted guards had finally been released from the handcuffs and duct tape. But much to their continued chagrin, they couldn't leave the museum. The FBI needed to question them. Falzon noticed several red flags during his first interview. First, Abbott was on his last week of work. He'd coincidentally put in his two weeks' notice just before the heist. Second, some of the statements made by Abbott contradicted other accounts from eyewitnesses who'd been outside the museum at the time of the robbery. Abbott initially claimed to have seen the robbers park their car, immediately get out, and walk up to the museum. But others said they'd seen the thieves sitting in their vehicle for a while before getting out. The data recovered from the motion detectors also made Falzon suspicious. While the thieves had stolen the printer readouts, the information was still backed up on a hard drive, and it showed no activity in the Blue Room during the time of the heist despite the fact that the Manet painting was stolen from that room. The only motion in the Blue Room appeared during Abbott's regular rounds that night. That said, it was possible that the thieves knew how to avoid being detected, a trick that the security guards themselves sometimes practiced for their own amusement. But the most suspicious aspect of Abbott's story was the fact that he'd let the men inside at all. The security guards were trained to be extremely skeptical of anyone requesting entry after hours, even if they claimed to be police officers. Abbott's decision to let the thieves into the building was either incompetent or criminal. Falzon's first objective was to figure out which. The guards' questioning continued into the mid-afternoon, at which point Falzon finally allowed them to leave. He still wasn't satisfied with the men's answers, but he couldn't hold them any longer. It had been a long 24 hours for Abbott, but the guard wasn't going to let the traumatic experience and scrutiny from the FBI stop him from making his concert. As soon as he left the museum, he drove 100 miles west to Hartford, Connecticut to see the Grateful Dead play. The next morning, 
Abbas saw news coverage of the heist at the Gardner Museum. That's when he realized his choice to abruptly leave Massachusetts after the robbery could have looked suspicious. So he skipped the second concert that evening and returned to Boston. This was probably the right decision, because Falzon still had his suspicions. The detective assembled a team of nearly 30 FBI agents and threw himself into the Gardner Museum case. Working off his initial hunch, Falzon interviewed the security guards multiple times, along with all other employees. He made Abbott and Heston tell their story of the robbery again and again. Eventually, Falzon ordered a polygraph test. Heston's indicated that he had told the truth. Abbott's, on the other hand, came back inconclusive. During questioning, the FBI asked Abbott whether he'd taken any drugs in the 48 hours prior to the heist. Abbott answered no, but his response was flagged as a lie. Abbott would later claim that he took a second polygraph in which the FBI refrained from asking about drug use and that he passed the test. But unfortunately, we can't corroborate his story. The FBI has never publicly commented one way or the other. That said, their focus on Abbott and Heston waned when the FBI found four eyewitnesses who were at a party nearby at the time of the heist. The partiers corroborated the guards' story, confirming that they saw two men dressed as policemen in the early morning hours of March 18th. With no hard evidence suggesting either guard was involved, Falzon and the FBI moved away from Abbott and Heston as suspects. Plus, by this point, Falzon had a hard time believing either man was capable of such a complicated and precise criminal operation. So Falzon and the FBI began investigating other possibilities, like former Gardner Museum employees with possible grudges. But none of the recently departed security guards fit the bill. In fact, nobody did. Confused and dejected, detectives felt the stolen object seemed almost nonsensical. The thieves had taken famous Rembrandt and Manet paintings, but they'd also grabbed several pieces that were significantly less valuable, like the Chinese beaker and the sketches. Falzon theorized that they took the beaker because, unlike the paintings, there were no convincing copies of it. If they wanted to hold the artwork for ransom, the thieves could use the beaker to prove they really were the culprits, and not just opportunists who'd bought replicas. But as the days and weeks passed without any communication from the thieves, that theory grew weaker. Eventually, Falzon wrote it off altogether. While he scrambled for credible leads, heavy news coverage complicated the investigation. Hundreds of people inundated the FBI with tips, but they all turned out to be useless. To assist in the investigation, the museum offered a $1 million reward to anyone who knew anything about the heist. But the plan backfired. Some tipsters made honest mistakes, confusing copies of the paintings they'd seen for the missing originals. But others told blatant lies in an attempt to claim the reward money. But this didn't stop Falzon and the FBI from exploring unusual avenues for information. They even accepted input from local psychics who toured the museum and offered their own interpretations. Months passed, 
And still, the investigation turned up nothing concrete. Which is no surprise, because according to the FBI, only 5% of stolen art is ever returned. In order to get the paintings back, Falzon would likely need a lucky break. Unfortunately, that break never came. All momentum in the investigation stalled. The stolen artwork could have been anywhere in the world, or it could have all been destroyed. The FBI and the Gardner Museum were losing hope until a major tip came from the thieves themselves. Coming up, the museum finally finds a promising lead. Now, back to the story. On March 18, 1990, two thieves dressed as policemen walked out of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston with well over $200 million in stolen artwork. It was the largest art heist in history. The FBI's investigation was difficult, with very little physical evidence or leads. The head investigator, Dan Falzon, worked his way backwards. He uncovered a case from the previous decade that had startling similarities to the Gardner heist. In 1980, a 20-year-old thief named Brian McDevitt plotted an audacious art robbery. The target was the Hyde Collection in upstate New York, which just so happened to be modeled after the Gardner Museum. McDevitt and an accomplice knocked out a FedEx driver with ether, then stole his truck and uniform. They wanted to use the disguise to enter the museum before binding the security guards with handcuffs and duct tape. They were well prepared, with tools to disable the motion alarms and gain access to their prize, a Rembrandt masterpiece titled Christ with Arms Folded. They planned to cut the painting right out of its frame. But their careful scheme was foiled by a traffic jam. After failing to reach the museum in time, McDevitt and his accomplice abandoned the vehicle and fled. The police found the FedEx truck and the driver identified the thieves. McDevitt and his partner were arrested shortly after. Each spent less than two years in prison. The plan for the botched Hyde Collection robbery matched the successful one at Gardner Museum. Both heists focused on Rembrandt paintings and utilized disguises to enter the museum and handcuffs and duct tape to subdue the guards. McDevitt seemed like a perfect match. In late 1990, Falzon and the FBI tracked McDevitt down in Los Angeles. He was now 30 years old and trying to start a career as a screenwriter. The first two scripts he wrote were both about heists. At first, McDevitt seemed promising. He even refused to take a polygraph test, which the FBI couldn't legally compel him to do. But once again, Falzon hit a dead end. His evidence was only circumstantial and anecdotal. He needed something to link McDevitt to this specific crime. So while McDevitt remained under suspicion, the case moved on. Falzon grew demoralized by the lack of progress, and he wasn't the only one. The museum's administration began losing hope that the stolen artwork would ever be recovered. Anne Hawley, the museum's director, had been skeptical of Falzon and the FBI from the start. 
she worried that they hadn't devoted as many resources as they should have to crack the case. By the fourth anniversary of the robbery, Holly believed she'd been proven correct. Falzon hadn't found anything, and the FBI cut down the investigation's manpower significantly. In response, the museum hired their own private investigators, but they didn't find anything either. All that anyone could hope for was a stroke of good luck. And in the spring of 1994, over four years after the robbery, they finally got one. In late April, Holly received a mysterious envelope postmarked from New York City. Inside, she found an anonymous two-page letter from someone claiming to be writing on behalf of the thieves. Holly could tell it wasn't a hoax. The writer recounted details about the break-in that had never been released to the public. For example, the FBI believed the thieves wore security guards' uniforms despite pretending to be police officers, which the author confirmed. The letter explained that the culprits had robbed the Gardner Museum because they wanted to use the artwork to somehow obtain a prison sentence reduction, but that hadn't panned out. The thieves now had a simple proposition for the museum. They promised to return the stolen pieces, which they claimed were still in good condition, in exchange for immunity from prosecution, and $2.6 million. According to the letter, if Holly was interested in making the deal, she had to meet two conditions. First, she couldn't involve law enforcement. And second, she had to signal that she was ready to play ball by leaving a coded message in the Boston Globe. The code would be the number one by itself in the middle of the Sunday business section next to the daily value of the Italian lira. It was an odd request, but Holly didn't care. This was an opportunity to get the paintings back, and $2.6 million wasn't an outrageous number, given the artwork's value. But she had a decision to make, whether to involve law enforcement and disobey the letter's instruction, or work alone. Despite her distrust of the agency, Holly ultimately called the FBI. They quickly leapt into action, reaching out to the Boston Globe regarding the coded signal. Then, on Sunday, May 1st, 1994, the currency value section of the Boston Globe featured an odd one between the listing for the Italian lira and its current value. To the public, it would have looked like a strange misprint. Hawley and the FBI held their breath, hoping the thieves would receive the message. It worked. The following week, Hawley received a second anonymous letter. It confirmed that the robbers had seen the digit and were encouraged by her desire to negotiate, but they'd somehow learned Holly had communicated with the FBI. Knowledge of the first letter had spread within the Bureau and elsewhere. Other state and local police were alerted that an arrest might be forthcoming in the Gardner Museum case. The second letter lashed out at Holly, complaining that the museum had failed at the simple task of not involving law enforcement in their negotiations. It warned that Holly could either continue working with the FBI and potentially arrest someone, or she could get her artwork back unharmed and intact. 
In large, all capital letters, the writer told Holly that she could not do both. After this stern warning, the writer temporarily cut off communications. They claimed that if the thieves decided to re-engage with the museum, they'd leave clues for Holly. But they never did. There were no more letters or signals. The only promising lead in the case had abruptly evaporated. In March 1995, on the fifth anniversary of the heist, the statute of limitations expired on the Gardner Museum robbery. This meant that even if the thieves came forward with a confession, they couldn't be prosecuted. And yet, even with this assurance, no one did. In 1996, after six years of work, Dan Falzon was reassigned from the case and transferred to San Francisco. But he remained obsessed with the heist. He couldn't stop thinking about all the unanswered questions, like why the thieves had stolen the low-value sketches and Chinese beaker when they could have taken far more expensive artwork. Additionally, he still couldn't explain the fact that the motion detectors hadn't sensed any footsteps in the blue room. And he remained perplexed at how easy it had all been for the thieves. Falzon called the Boston office every day asking if there'd been any updates in the case. As a gift, the new investigators sent him a copy of one of the stolen paintings, Vermeer's The Concert. He framed it, placing it on the wall above his desk. It was a constant reminder of a mystery that haunted him. Soon after Dan Falzon left Boston, the FBI looked into other avenues of investigation. Now that the statute of limitations had passed, they had no interest in making an arrest. They only wanted to recover the art. Eventually, they realized there was one investigative angle that connected all the dots of the Gardner heist. It could explain why the thieves stole such famous and recognizable paintings, and why there was seemingly no attempt to fence the artwork afterwards. And it offered a reason for why no one ever came forward with information about the robbery. There was only one type of enterprise that would be involved in a crime so brazen and high profile that had the power to keep it all secret. To crack the case, the investigators needed to delve into the murky world of Boston organized crime. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back next time with part two of the Gardner Museum Heist. For more information on the Gardner Museum Heist, among the many sources we used, we found The Gardner Heist by Ulrich Boser and Master Thieves, The Boston Gangsters Who Pulled Off the World's Greatest Art Heist by Stephen Kirkjian, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler. 
Sound design by Jay Cohen, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Ryan Lee, with writing assistance by Angela Jorgensen and Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein, and research by Bradley Klein. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.